we praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We send peace and blessings upon our beloved Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, upon his blessed family, his al, al itriyah and his companions and those who follow them until the end of time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. It's, it's an honor to be here with you here in Detroit, Michigan, uh, and a greater honor to be with Sheikh Zaza and the great work of the Rahma Foundation, especially when it comes to serving the needs of our Yemeni community, our brothers and sisters in Yemen who continue to suffer uh, in really in indescribable ways, unimaginable ways. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and yastakhdimana insha'Allah. And we ask Allah to make us min alati la subhanahu wa ta'ala ala waji ardi. To make us like those tools that can be used to spread the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As our beloved messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Arrahimun yarhamuhum arrahman yarhamuhuman fil ard yarhamkumman fi sama'a. That we are, you know, carriers, routers of, rah of the Rahmah of Allah. And that the Rahmah of Allah wasi'at kulli shay. With that in mind, I just wanted to talk about a few things I think that are important to the American Muslim community that are concerning, but at the same time are promising. Over the last few years, we've seen the entrance and the uh, passions of American Muslims around activism, around political engagement increase. We've seen communities begin to hold religious leadership responsible um, in what they say and how they teach, uh, which are all insha'Allah ta'ala very good things. At the same time, we're seeing a greater passion in the structuring and administration of our nonprofits, And fourth component of this would be we've seen people pull away uh, from the unmasked movement, for example, uh, pull away from nonprofits. All of these things, inshallah, have some good in them. But I think it's important for us to think critically about Islam in a way that forces us to see it as a lens which is going to amplify things that we need to work on and also amplify things that we're doing well as a critical lens. We, we tend to view Islam perhaps as something benign, something dormant, not as something that is a, a, a place of inspiration and a constant place of improvement. As the Prophet said in Sahih Muslim, the one who hasana Islam. You know, the person, as Ibn Malik said, The 
Sayyidina Muhammad said, Hassana Islamahu, that means like constantly tries to improve their Islam. Constantly is able to return uh, to Islam as a, a critical lens that he or she can shine into their own lives and examine their own lives with, as well as an institutional and communal lens, which allows us also to be aware and alert of certain shortcomings. So I just want to talk about a few of those, inshallah, in some brevity, and I'll finish. I think one of the bigger challenges that we've seen is a lack of academic and inter intellectual grit within the Muslim community, which is going to provide us with frameworks by which we can engage in activism. Our brother Dawood Wali now has an excellent book out on sacred activism. But it's very rare to find people actually engaging and thinking about their religion in a way that forces them to work with the raw materials of life around them, but making sure that they mold those into what will truly be pleasing to Allah. What I see is passion, people with assumptions about religion, who interject themselves maybe into religion itself, into education, into politics, into environmental resilience, into a host of things based on some like some kind of like general assumptions about Islam but haven't number one learned Islam to a greater degree have familiarity with the teachings of the Quran even though they may be Muslims and in fact may supplement uh, the lack of familiarity with the Quran and with their tradition with their culture or with their experiences, or with their understandings. And that begs to, that forces us to ask ourselves, if that's the case, then how can we be certain that we're doing this for Allah? Allah says, Like, don't follow hawa. And, and one of the ways to, in, desires, and one of the ways to taper desires, and to, to at least reduce the impact of desires, is to make sure that what I'm doing is rooted in a proper understanding. That's why in numerous places in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala predicates actions or conditions actions on knowledge. I'lamu, 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 like you have to know. I would also argue that within religious studies in America, when it comes to Islamic studies, we have moved beyond simple traditionalism now to being traditionalistic, where the goal is not to explore and examine Islam as a means of inspiration, but is to uphold the tradition of Islam outside of the, the, the works of the Quran and Sunnah. So the scholarly tradition now, a goal is to uphold, say, the understandings of as me, for example, Maliki, that were found in books that were written many, many years ago. And that's a problem, because that creates a lack of connection with the age, pushes young people away from the religion, as well as old folks, and, and impedes our ability to synthesize our religion with the concerns of broader America. So there's a lot I can unpack in this short speech. But what I'm getting at is the foundations of our thought 
and the assumptions of our thought that at times when we are moved by passion to get involved in things and to take part in things, if we're not really in tune with the broader ideals of Islam, the maqasid of Islam, we may, as Sayyidina Umar ibn Abdul Aziz used to say, yusiru akthar mimma yuslih. Right? That a person who does this may create more corruption than benefit. And I want to focus on four areas. Number one is the economic ideology that permeates the world, and which indeed runs America. And that's capitalism. And I would argue that in many ways, we as a community have begun to supplement the notions of zuhud, being aloof from opulence, turning away from materialism, not judging people by their, the amount of money or, or wealth they have, or what neighborhood they live in. We have begun to supplement the idea of taqwa, piety and nearness to God, having nothing to do with financial utility. And now given that to people who are automatically, perhaps because of their wealth, assumed to be good Muslims. And I'll give you one example that screams in the face of the Muslim community. And that is that if you look at, I would say, the large percentage of boards that are operating our masajid and our nonprofits, you will not find people on those boards who are poor. You will not find people in leadership positions in the Muslim community who may be struggling financially. And in fact, those people could be invested daily in the operations of those institutions. They may even be trained academically in nonprofit work, in development. But because they are not able to write large checks, they are not granted access to leadership. This is something that contradicts the foundations of our religion at its core. The Prophet وسلم, in a very beautiful statement, he said, there are amongst us people who are incredibly weak, so weak that he called them the tamreen, people that just have water and dates. But if they were to swear by God, God will answer their supplication. We look at Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhumah, and Sayyidina Umar, who in his reign used to meet regularly with the companions of the Prophet the idea of accountability and leadership. And Abu Sufyan would come, one of the you know, later people who accepted Islam, who was a staunch enemy of the Prophet for many years. Abu Sufyan would, Imam Dhabi and others mentioned, come to these gatherings. And he would expect to be given kind of like the first class treatment because he was Abu Sufyan and because he had a tremendous amount of wealth. But Umar ibn Khattab doesn't judge a person by their wealth. That's not what matters. He judges them based on their credibility their knowledge, 
their sacrifice, their understanding of the situation. Because his goal is ihsan. If I'm just putting people who can donate large amount of money in power because they have money, not because they're qualified, then my goal is not ihsan. My goal is something else. So Sayyidina Umar al-Khattab, in one of the beautiful narrations, he notices that Abu Sufyan is wanting to be given preferential treatment. So what does he do? He makes him wait the whole day. And he parades in front of him Sayyidina Salman. And he parades in front of him Sayyidina Suhaib. And he parades in front of him Sayyidina Bilal. He gives them preferential treatment. Because those are sabiqoon al-awwaloon. And he teaches them an important lesson. It's not about what you have. It's about who you are and the sacrifice you've made. And the expertise that you bring to the table. This is embodied in an incredible moment mentioned by Al-Bukhari when Sayyidina Umar comes to Mecca and he finds that a, a slave has become the Imam of the people of Mecca. Let's, let's frame that socially. We're talking about a community a short time before that that was rocked with tribalism, that was rocked with racism. The social and economic stratification of Mecca was incredible. There was no middle class. And when he sees that they have a slave who was an Arab, he was of African origin, Sara Imam al-Nas, became the Imam. He was moved, he was happy, he was joyous. And he said to them, Subhanallah, how did this slave become your Imam? And their response is the response of people who have not compromised institutional aspirations with preferential treatment to certain people. They said to him, He is the most knowledgeable of the book of Allah. That's why he's the Imam. And then Sayyidina Umar, he mentioned the verse, and that's why Ibn Kathir, I believe, in his tafsir, he mentions this incident under the statement, That the Qur'an and understanding the Qur'an is better than anything. So I, I'm, I'm saying this as a friend, as a Muslim, as a lover of the community, as a member of the Muslim community. That if we look at the leadership of our community, it lacks female participation. It lacks the participation of the youth. It lacks participation of the converts. It lacks participation of the most vulnerable in our community. And instead has constantly favored people who can donate. And while I understand nobody likes to, the peanuts on Southwest. I get it. Institutions need to run. We need to encourage people to work for financial autonomy. I get it the integrity and honesty of our community will be compromised if we restrict access to power only to those who are affluent. That is not prophetic. So there's one example of how the standards of the society that we live in, which tends to give preferential treatment to the wealthy under Obama and now under Trump, gives preferential treatment to the wealthy 
and does not look for expertise and does not look for people who are qualified is the outcome of perhaps adopting a set of values which are foreign to our religion. Sayyidina Ali used to say that the righteous are those nadaru ila batanid dunya those who know the reality of the dunya that this dunya is not a place that should be allowed to be the edifice by which we craft our morals and our values. And he said, and the opposite of those who are those who are consumed by the outward essence of this world, the promise of this world. Let us not forget that our beloved messenger used to say, Allahumma, oh Allah, resurrect me with the masakim. Resurrect me with the poor. And we know that in Surah Al-Kaf, which we read, 18, Surah number 18, Allah says to the Prophet, Stay resilient with those who supplicate to their Lord morning and evening. Most of our scholars say that was, of course, Sayyidina Bilal, Sayyidina Suhaib, Sayyidina Ammar, some of the poor people of Mecca, Al-Tabari mentions that when this verse was revealed, shortly before it was revealed, excuse me, that the Quraysh were chastising the Prophet and saying, we cannot be with you if you're going to be with these poor people. We will not join you if you're going to give preferential treatment or fair treatment, excuse me, to these poor people. And then Allah revealed this verse. And then Sayyidina Nabi alayhi salatu wasalam, he came out and he said, Alhamdulillah, alladhi Praise be to the one who ordered me to be patient with the vulnerable and the poor. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So our administrative makeup, regardless of who it is, is an indictment of our inability to look for expertise, to look for diversity, but instead has restricted access to the richest of the rich. That's not prophetic. That's running a hedge fund. The second example is on the opposite side. We see now amongst our community on the fringe of the far left, those who also are not interested in expertise, but are interested in identity. So you may have people who are extremely qualified to talk on issues, and they will be told, because, for example, you're a woman, or because you're a man, or because you're from this ethnicity, or because you're an imam, or because of this, you are immediately viewed as suspect. Even though you may be an expertise in that field, and preferential treatment will be given to an identity, but identity does not equate to expertise. I'm from Oklahoma, but I cannot in any academic way speak on, for example, the most top five resources in Oklahoma that bring in its income. If someone came and said, I'm an expert on this, and they were from Texas, even though I don't like Texas for the sake of Allah, would we say to them, well, because you're not from Oklahoma, you can't speak about Oklahoma, but Suhaib is from Oklahoma, so we'll let Suhaib speak about Oklahoma, or to teach us about Oklahoma. This now we're seeing on the fringe left of the Muslim community is as problematic as the other. Because it is no longer invested in expertise and ihsan. 
And it's invested in a, a politics of identity which is foreign to our religion. The Prophet said, Excellence is prescribed in everything. That also doesn't mean that we don't learn and benefit from experience and historical trajectory. Of course not, we benefit from that. But if it is not rooted in some type of expertise and simply an experience of one individual person, that becomes a problem. The second concern is that da'wah now is synonymous with being famous. That to be a da'iyah or to be a religious activist is somehow associated with ring lights and makeup tutorials and large numbers of fake likes. Someone even asked me, do you think it's okay for me to buy likes on Instagram for the da'wah? I said to this person, who, who are you making da'wah to? Yourself or to Allah? And the Prophet, and this is not to chastise people because it's, it's, it's hard, right? It's a hard world and these things are happening. But the job of our Imams is not simply to cheer the community, but is also to render sincere advice when needed. I remember when I was in Egypt studying and a brother stopped me. He found me on campus there and he came to me and he said, you know, I want to come to Azhar. I said, oh, that's, that's wonderful. Why? He said, so I can be famous like, and then he mentioned an, a, a number of imams in America who are very famous. And I said, so you want to learn for fame? Like, this is not the voice. This is not like, you know, dancing with the stars. This is religion. We know that the Prophet said very beautifully that the most beloved servants to God Right, the most beloved servants to God are those who are known for their scrupulousness. They are pious, honest people. And at the same time, they are hidden. The hadith of Sayyidina Mu'adh. Because Mu'adh, radiallahu anhu, he, he mentions this narration because Mu'adh became famous and he was very young. In the Ummah. But subhanAllah, someone found him weeping. They said, Ma yubkik, like what's causing you to cry? Because of the fame that he was starting to amass. And he said, Well, I, I heard the Prophet say, Inna ahabba al ibadi ilallah al atqiya al akhfiya. That's what's causing me to weep. And then the people asked the Prophet, who are the akhfiya? And he said, those, إِذَا غَابُوا لَمْ يُفْقَدُوا Those who when they're gone, people don't notice. And when they're present, لَمْ يُعْرَفُوا And when they're present, people don't notice them. What people notice is not them, but their work. If they're gone, their work is missed. And if they're present, the work is there, so you don't associate the work to the person. The idea of hiding goodness, the idea of, of da'wah not being about social utility and likes and followers and Snapchat imam and all of those things, but da'wah being about Allah, not me. And that's, that's something that's permeated into our community through certain Protestant manifestations of religion. 
as well as, and respectfully I say this, some of the directions that du'at in the Arab world took maybe 10 or 15 years ago in the name of populism, and populism is important if it's used right, but turning Islam into kind of a celebrity moment. There's a book written in Qatar, Qatar called Suq al-Islam. It's a very interesting book. It talks about the commodification of the religious identity. That also doesn't mean that imams should be poor and du'at should be poor. Of course not. That's a problem. Shafi used to say, in kuntum bil masala. You know, if I'm, if I'm affected by poverty, I can't serve. But when the catalyst for calling to God is checking my Instagram every three minutes to see how many people liked what I posted, when the catalyst of da'wah is to look on YouTube and examine the comments and see what people wrote about me, when the catalyst of da'wah is to make sure I have the best concealer on, when the catalyst of da'wah is to make sure that my thobe is on fleek, I've missed the point. And wallahi wallah, those people that have this challenge, and may Allah save us, be mindful of Allah. And that's why the Prophet said, Man ta'allam al-ilma, whoever learns knowledge, to impress people, fanar al-nar. Like let them prepare for hell. This doesn't mean we go to the extreme, extreme of isolation, of course not. But that we just function as normal people. And that our da'wah is not directed to us. Our da'wah is directed to Allah. One of our teachers, mashallah, used to say on the mimbar, if you say, Ana, akthar min ismi rabbik, there's a problem. Like if you're saying, Ana, af'aru, aqulu, udhakirukum, and so on and so forth. Akthar din, qala Allahu ta'ala, aw rabbana yaf'al kada, aw kana nabiyu alayhi salam kada. He said, you have to check your heart. Because al-an, anta tad'u ila sabirik, wala tad'u. And this is something like really subtle, but it's like really, really important. The last point that I'll make, inshallah, is that we also have been affected by these times. These times are not easy, but they're by no means the worst time ever. You know, you can read about the invasions of the Mongols into the Muslim world, I mean, that is bad. 1947 in partition, what happened in Pakistan and India, and people trying to go back to Pakistan, go into India, like that's bad. What happened in Bosnia, that's bad. What's happening in Yemen, that's bad. But for us to somehow posit ourselves as being in the worst yawm in ayam dunya is a mistake. And the first is that maybe that's the outcome of not understanding dunya. Inna dunya mal'una. The Prophet said that this dunya is cursed. And again, contemporary messaging within the Protestant community has seeped into the Muslim community in some very interesting ways. The prosperity gospel of people like Joel Osteen is something now that has seeped into the Muslim community. Joel Osteen, who wouldn't open his church for people during a flood. Is this really who you want to be like? 
And what that, that's done is made us expect that the more religious I am, the better my life will be. That the more I increase my ibadah and my dhikr, that somehow my life is going to become Jannah. And we need to note something. That internally, yes, there'll be a sense of rida with Allah. And internally, in my heart, there'll be a sense of satisfaction with God. But that does not necessarily equate to external ease and success. That's why Sayyidina Imam al-Nawawi in his book, Riyadh al-Salihin, if you look at the tabweeb of the book, how he's organized the chapters, because Imam al-Nawawi, he organized the abwab of Riyadh al-Salihin as the manazil al-Sadiqin. Right? The way that the book is organized, it's for the seekers, the mutasawifah. So the first chapter is Niyya. The second chapter is Toba, And the third chapter is Sabah. Resilience. And if we tie uh, intrinsically our religiosity with our material success, we will be failures. One of our teachers, Sheikh Ahmad Taharayan, mashallah, I studied with him for seven years. He's a great teacher, one of my teachers, a great person. And we were reading uh, Riyadh Salihin with him, or the Muatta. And I remember he brought up this point. He said, if you think that religiosity is somehow tethered to material happiness, how did Sayyidina Umar pass away? How did Sayyidina Ali pass away? These were horrible deaths. Sayyidina Al-Hussein pass away. But these people are من أكابر أولياء الله. And the challenge with that is, is that when we begin to frame our faith within the measurements, الميزان الدنيوية, it will lead to three things. Number one, weakness. will be weak. Because we will be attached to this dunya. And the dunya is weak, it's fragile. That's why Al-Busti, he said, Ya khadim al-jismi kam tashqa li Oh, the person who constantly is serving their material needs. He uses the body as a metaphor. And he says, you know, you, you've toiled in this, but you're looking for ribh, and something khusrano. You're looking for like a payback and something that its nature is to be destroyed. Aqbil ala nafsik wastakmil fada'ilaha fa'inna kabi al-nafsla bil jisri insano. Yes, Allah, Allah. He said, you know, you should work on your, your heart and your soul and create the spiritual capacity for resilience and patience because it's by your soul, not your body, that you're truly human. So you won't find on the Muslim Instagram people talking about like, man, I found this really, really crappy quality in my soul and I've been working on it and it's getting better. You won't find someone being vulnerable. And that leads to the, the second thing. A call-out community that does not leave the door open for redemption. Because the dunya, the only one who knows haqiqat the dunya is Allah. 
And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yasif haqiqat dunya fi kitabi. I'lamu annama al-hayatu dunya la'ibun wa lahum wa zina. He mentions it. Wala tansa nasibaka min al-dunya, of course. But haqiqat dunya la'yarifuha ila rabbuha. So what happens now is we, we begin to confuse the reality of the dunya. And we begin to create our values simply on materialistic expectations and measurements. And forgot that one of the greatest qualities of Islam the Prophet mentioned is al-wara. To be cautious in dunya. Kun fi dunya ka'annaka gharibun aw abiru Be like you're moving through dunya. And this affects everyone, me, everyone. I'm by no means up here saying I'm free of this. We're all infected. It's like the walking dead. But what happens is that when we create the standards, our ideologies, which are trying to grasp at the reality of dunya, but they're only ara. They're only ara. And then we begin to hold on to these ideologies in ways in ways that they are like qat'iyat thubut. We lose rahmah for each other. An outcome of someone who's not zahid is they are not able to be merciful to people because they love dunya. And a lover of dunya is selfish. Shuha. وَمَا يُقَى شُحَ نَفْسِهِ فَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْمُفْلِحُونَ And when someone makes a mistake, and I'm not talking about of course, egregious things or massive mistakes, that's very different. But small things that don't align with our dunya aspirations, we will call them out and we will discipline them and we will punish them. And at the same time, we'll close the door of redemption. So we'll box them in. One time I was uh, in Canada and I met a Muslim. He came to me and he said, I want to just tell you that I don't like you. I said, Wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And I said, why? He said, you know, you said this, 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 this. I said, did you? Did you hear me say that? He said, no, I read somewhere that you said, that. no, but did you hear me say this? He said, no. And then the fatwa that he was worried about, he said, you're a modernist. Look at the ideological ability to categorize someone we have axioms in our Sharia that protect us from that. La jarha bil madhab, al-ibratu bil maani, laysa bil asma. Yani, we care about meaning, we care about depth. We don't simply just excuse people and deem them irredeemable. So I said to him, Man, that's the fatwa of Sayyidina Umar. This is not my fatwa. Did you box Umar into the square of being a modernist? Then he said, I don't believe you. I said, خلاص, I pulled up the, the, the book on my, my phone, the PDF. I said, look, And he said to me, I can't believe it. Because he's bought into his definition of who I am. And there's no opportunity for what I said to him next. What if I repented since you haven't seen me? And what if I made tawbah, tawbah tan nasuha? And Allah accepted that tawbah. And I changed my life. And I realized I was wrong. And I became a better person. He said, I can't forgive you. Because he's so invested in himself. That's not related 
to a prophetic understanding. Abu Sufyan, I mentioned earlier, his wife, they hired someone to kill Sayyidina Hamza. And still Allah says, If they come back and if they reform themselves, they're your brothers and sisters in, fam in, in deen. So sometimes the lack of a redemptive spirit has nothing to do with a religious motivation. It's because I love dunya and dunya doesn't forgive. And that takes me to the last point. That we've constructed a world and a religious understanding that's rooted directly into material success. Two points. We won't allow each other to make mistakes. You know, I, I love Linda Sarsour. I feel sorry for Linda, man. You know, her greatest adversaries are the Muslim community. You ask, ask them like, why? Well, she said this and this and this. Do you know Linda, man? Did you call her? Did you talk to her? Did you build with her? You make dua for her? Did you make dua for her once? And I said to one person, if you are criticizing these people, Yasa Qadi one time someone told me, Yasa Qadi this, this, this. I said, man, did you pray for Yasa Qadi? Ah, uh, no, man. I... Subhanallah, you, you care for them, but you don't make dua for them, and you know the dua of the person whose ghaib is accepted by God, then you can't really claim that you care. I converted to Islam, subhanAllah, 1992. I converted to a brother, Shaykh Abdurrahman Basir. He's now 80, mashallah. He doesn't miss Fajr in the masjid and he gets dialysis every two days. Nobody knows him. More than 10,000 people, as I know, became Muslim through him. But he's al-akhfiya. Satarahu rabbu. Rahmatallahu. He's not famous. But I remember when I accepted Islam, about four or five years later, he told me, when I saw you as a non-Muslim, I prayed for you. I ask Allah to guide you because you are bad. Right? The point is like he cares. He's a caring person. But when I frame my religious identity in dunya, it will lead to a call-out culture. And sometimes there are things need to be called out, of course. The lack of redemption for people who failed me, so selfishness. And third, I don't really care about the people that I'm trying to correct. So if I don't care about the people that I'm trying to correct, then my correction is suspect Islamically. And this will take me to the last point. That when I frame my religious identity within the irrational terms of the material, because we need to be honest, that faith, faith is belief in the irrational. You can call it super rational if you want to be safer. Allah says, الَّذِينَ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْغَيْبِ حَاجَ مُشْمَعُودَ When we say to our kids, there's no monster in the closet. لماذا أنت خائف? No, no, I saw, I saw the ghul, you know, in the closet. Yeah, Baba, that's my thobe. So this is like irrationality. If someone says, أنا أؤمن بالصانع الذي خلق كل شيء لكنني لا أراه if you take the definitions of the dunya, this is irrationality. And 
And then when we admit that and, and stop trying to fit our theology within the paradigms and constructions of the West as it is, and we emancipate our theology, as Vincent Lloyd talks about, and free it to speak on its own. We have to emancipate Islam from cultural constructions. Emancipate Islam from evil financial constructions. Emancipate Islam from the Hawa. And allow Islam to speak for itself. That demands sincerity. That I don't tamper or, or tinker with the message of Islam. But I try as best I can to speak on behalf of the Prophet And to speak about God with rigor. بَلِّغْ مَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْكَ مِنْ رَبِّكَ فَإِنْ لَمْ تَفْعَلْ فَمَا بَلَّغْتَ رِسَالَاتِهِ شُعْبَانْ عَصِمْ You know, deliver the message of God as it have you been commanded. And one of the outcomes of this at an individual level is that many of us have given up hope, man. The dunya is a monster. It's mean. There's a lot of things that should be upsetting us. We're not, I'm not saying that we're just stoic. No, we're moved. But we're moved by God. Right? So many narrations encourage us to control our emotions and to think based on wahi, based on guidance. So that last point is that when I've constructed and tethered religion, to the material and made my success in religion parallel to my success in dunya and I fail, I sin or I slip. Not only will I be unable to impart redemption to others, I may not be able to forgive myself. And that's why Allah says in the Quran, لا تقنتوا من رحمة الله. If you're going to give up on anything, never give up on God. If we're going to give up on anything, because the dunya is 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 finite, it's easy to give up on it. وما عند الله باق. But what's with Allah lasts. That's why Sayyidina Ibn Taala Skandri he said من علامات اعتماد على العمل نقصان الرجاء عند وجود الزلل. I don't know how to translate that, but you know, basically the sign that you've trusted on dunya and your deeds is that when a test hits you, you lose your hope. Because the hope was in myself. And I myself am limited. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lahu qidam wa lahu al-baqa wa huwa mukhalifatu lil-hawadith subhanahu wa ta'ala wa laysa kamithlihi shay. But me as a human being, I know that I'm going to die. And when I die, it's over. So why would I invest in myself in this way? So the last point, and I finish, is forgive yourself, man. You're going to make mistakes in your marriage. It happens. You're going to make mistakes in the community. It happens. You're going to make mistakes at work. It happens. You're going to make mistakes with your Lord. It happens. Wallahu ghafoorur rahim. And that's why in Al-Hikam, he says very beautifully that if you believe that your sins are what is acting as a counterproductive factor in your life, 
medicate the fear of your sins, the fear of your great sins, in the hope in Allah's mercy because His mercy is greater than your sin. So we can see something as I finish now. That when we have allowed our religion to be interpreted by the dunya, instead of the opposite. Sheikh Sha'rawi used to say, يعني علينا تدين العصر لنا تعصر تدين. You know, like, it has to be the opposite. The lenses of our faith are what shines for us, not the dunya shined onto our faith. You can just see some of the powerful outcomes of that happening. So ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and yaj'alna min awliya'ihi subhanahu wa ta'ala al-mukhlisin.